According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me in Proverbs 14 this morning. Proverbs 14. Last week we were looking at verse 22, and uh, we'll be ready today to move on to verses uh, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27. We'll see how far we get. Um, we didn't finish everything out of verse 22, though, so we'll take a few minutes to do that. Before we do anything, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Make sure that we are filled with the Spirit and we are equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together. Father, we've got uh, some folks that couldn't make it this morning because of sickness, but you know where they are. And and, uh, Father, we just pray for your healing hand to be upon them. Bless them, Father. Return them to us in the next available opportunity. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So Proverbs 14, and, and we were looking at verse 22 last week where it says, uh, will they not go astray who devise evil? Unusual, we start with a question. In fact, this is the first rhetorical question uh, in this section here from chapter 10 onward. Uh, will they not go astray who devise evil, but kindness and truth will be to those who devise good? And when we discuss the devising of things, the creativity that goes into that, the human volition that plots and plans and considers the inventiveness for things, we understand it for what it is. And we, we recognize that the behavior then that is exhibited is, is a reflection of where the heart is, is a reflection of the thinking. And because there was thought that went into it, there was devising that went into it, craftsmanship that went into it in uh, whatever extent that, uh, that happens there. And so we don't confuse the behavior with the heart. We don't confuse the deeds with what produced those deeds. And so this was point 14 in the outline. Kind of becoming an unwieldy outline at this point in the chapter. At some point, we just got to put all the remaining verses into an omnibus point and be done with it. But anyway, point 14, devising evil or devising good, these are the outward expressions of the inward nature. The outward expressions of the inward nature, because it was internally that these schemes got started. These, uh, these, uh, think about an artisan that, uh, that uh, crafts a, a gem or a piece of work or a jewelry, uh, a piece of jewelry, for example. And so some thought went into how they were going to cut the facets of those gems and how they were going to set those gemstones in the settings and how they were going to design all the, the fittings of, of a ring, for example, or another piece of jewelry. And it, it does. It takes conscious thought and deliberate thought. And if it's something of your own devising, of your own inventiveness, of your own creativity, then, uh, then, then I think we can understand it for what it is. And that's what this verse is, is dealing with here. Devising evil or devising good. And, uh, and this is, uh, I think it's a great privilege. I think it's a blessing to be in the image of God, to be afforded such a thing that here is God. God is the only creator and yet we in his image are creative. You see the difference? So he is a cre- the one and only creator, but we are creative in our imagination, in our thinking, in our uh, capacity uh, as, as, as the image of God to be able to do these things. 
And so um, it's, a, it's a blessing, but it's also at the same time, it's like a two-edged sword, it, is, it can be used for great evil. And that's the thing, all of our inventiveness and creativity and, and creator inventors of evil, there's a passage that, that warns about that, where you take your God-given creativity and you shape it around different ways to express sin, <laughs> okay? And our generation is expressing sin in ways that earlier generations would just cringe about, see, in uh, the, the progression of moral depravity there. All right. And so we talked about that. We uh, d- uh, demonstrated how these things are outward expressions of the inward nature. We looked at Romans 2, verses 7 and 8, that speaks about doing good and seeking good versus doing evil. Likewise, Matthew 25 in the, in the passage there that speaks of the sheep and goat judgment, it might appear that those past, that judgment is based upon external activity. And yet it's not. We learned in the, in the Olivet Discourse in the, in the sheep and goat judgment that it's righteousness that produces the things that are produced and uh, the aspect there. All right. The last thing, we ran out of time before we could look at harash. Harash is the Hebrew word here, number 2790, that speaks of cutting a thing, devising a thing of beauty where you are. um, And even if you're a farmer, the same verb is used if you're a farmer plowing the land because when you're plowing the land, what are you doing? You're engraving the dirt, okay? Uh, So anyway, the Hebrew likes to use the same word for that. But um, if you're plowing, if you're cutting, if you're engraving, the verb that is used there is harash. And curiously enough, it's also a word that's used in angelic conflict passages to refer to fallen angels and demons, to refer to um, uh, sorcery. Uh, those that would engrave amulets, for example. They, they are practitioners of magic because they engrave the, uh, the, the, the lucky charms, the, the amulets, the uh, things that were common in the ancient world for their spell casting. Um, in any event, uh, just a handful of uses. There's only uh, there are 27 of them in uh, in the Old Testament, and we've had a, a number of them already. Oh, there we go. We've had a number of them already. Look at uh, let's look at these now. Proverbs chapter three and verse 29. Proverbs 3:29. And. Um, this is the uh, the crafting. Do not design, devise or craft or engrave. Uh, do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives securely beside you. And so, you know, if if you only look at this on the surface level and think, well, I'm not doing him any harm. Yeah, but you're thinking about it, <laughs> you know. Uh, that thinking about it is the equivalent of doing it. In fact, Jesus said, if you, you know, lust after a woman, you're doing it. That you're doing it in your heart. And the anger behind murder is, is the same as murder. And so devising, you don't have to even harm your neighbor if you're devising harm against your neighbor. If you're thinking about it, you know, uh, some of us with mental attitudes are the biggest mass murderers that have ever driven Highway 183 because we consider, you know, I could I could do something horrible here, right? Well, why did that thought cross my mind? You know, because I'm a sinner. Uh, but that's that's what happens, okay? When you devise harm, and uh, we're told don't do that. Do not devise harm against your neighbor. In chapter six, you have it in verse fourteen and verse eighteen. 
And I guess, where do we pick this up? I guess 12 and following. A worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers. Remember this? He's a crafty fellow. And he is doing, he's doing deeds, but he's actually signaling to others to do the deed for him. That he's, he's putting the friendly face on things in front while he winks, while he motions with his finger, while he taps with his foot or what have you. And then somebody else can do the backstabbing. Somebody else can, can stick the knife in. Who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil. And it becomes continuous at that point. Your mind can go down a road it shouldn't be on in the first place. And the next thing you know, man, you've been on that path for the last two hours. You've been, you've been devising it over and over again. You've been running through different scenarios. You've been finding, well, that's not, that's not bad enough. And so you're, you kind of tweak it to make it worse, make it worse, make it worse. See, why does your mind keep going there? Continually devising evil. When we should be continually devising good. We should be using our imagination and our inventiveness to consider better ways to evangelize, better ways to edify, better ways to serve, more creative, more efficient ways. You know, how can we do communion better? How can we do potlucks better? What can we tweak on this? What can we do better here? And, and, and uh, using our uh, harash blessings in a positive way. Anyway, with the heart continually devising evil, who spreads strife, uh, so uh, therefore as calamity will come suddenly, it says in verse 15. Uh, verse 16, there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Alright, so here's a list. And uh, as we went through this, notice uh, a heart that devises wicked plans is, is right there in, number, in verse 18. Feet that run rapidly to evil. And so if, if you spend all your day thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it, well, is it any surprise that your feet run rapidly to evil? Yeah, you know, your feet run rapidly because you've been thinking about it all this time. So, you know, you've been thinking about it, thinking about it, you've been devising it, you've been wondering, how do I get away with it? And so then when the open door is presented, when Satan gives you the temptation, yeah, the feet run rapidly. Of course the feet run rapidly because the heart's been devising it for some time. All right, that's uh, chapter 6. Uh, chapter 12. We had a harash application in chapter 12. In verse uh, 20. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. So it starts with the heart. You're thinking about it. You're devising it. Then you act upon it. Twice, of course, here in, in chapter 14, we've already seen. And then one other use, I think Job 4.8 is useful for us in this context as well. In the book of Job. So many parallels between Proverbs and Job. And this is Eliphaz and his accusation. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, where were the upright destroyed? And this is what uh, Eliphaz opens with because he knows that Job is guilty. Job wouldn't have all these bad things happening to him if he wasn't guilty. So clearly he is guilty. He should just confess and be out with it. Um, he says, according to what I have seen, those who harash iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. And so he uses the same expression, the harash, for devising, for, um, for plotting, for scheming, but he puts it in the language of plowing and, and sowing um, in the, uh, to, to, to put it in that, in that parallel in the, in the poetry. So plowing is on the one hand, uh, sowing is on the other hand. 
And that's uh, it's, it's all it's all the same idiom they're talking about uh, plotting it out. If you plow iniquity, if you sow trouble, well then that's what you're going to harvest. You're going to harvest it. By the breath of God they perish. By the blast of His anger they come to an end. So yeah, if you are plowing iniquity and sowing trouble, then God's discipline will come upon you. But you see the, 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 the fallacy in his argument is that's not the only reason why things come upon you. Yes, God will administer divine discipline, but God will also permit undeserved suffering. And that was the aspect that uh, was totally missed by Job's accusers. All right, so that kind of wraps up things we didn't have time for last week with uh, 1422. Verse 23 then, in all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Here's a standalone verse uh, that uh, the A part and the B part make the point. Uh, You combine them. You recognize that uh, when you work hard, uh, it might hurt, might not be fun, might not be pleasant, but it is productive. Working hard will be productive. As much as it hurts, you still benefit by working hard. On the other hand, if all you do is talk about working hard, (laughs) if all you do is talk about it and you never put in the hard work, then uh, you can talk about it till the cows come home uh, and cows aren't coming home because you're not working, right? You got to get out there and bring those cows home. So um, anyway, it's interesting to me. Wisdom motivates labor over talk, profit over poverty. This is point 15 in the outline. Wisdom motivates labor over talk, profit over poverty. And I like this. There's nothing wrong with profit. Profit is not a dirty word. It's, it's uh, hated by a significant portion of our population. I notice they hate profit, but they sure want to spread it around <laughs> to others that don't have that profit. You know, if you hate it so much, then why do you want, you know, some of it? Why don't you just walk away from it? But uh, it's not a bad thing. God has designed us to be workers and God has designed us to be productive and in productivity comes profit, right? That which is left over, that which remains, that which is above and beyond uh, the cost that made to produce it, uh, it is, it's called profit. And so you, do, you want to uh, be able to take those profits and do what? More. <laughs> you want to be able to uh, yes, of course, you're going to enjoy the profits, but then you're also going to reinvest the profits because uh, that's what you're going to do. That's what he's designed us to do. Anyway, I could stop and give a whole lesson on free market capitalism just based upon this verse, but uh, we won't. Nevertheless, uh, this is what we're looking at. In labor, notice in all labor. In all labor. If you're truly putting the work into something, then that's by definition what what's going to be the consequence. Something will have been done because that's what you've been doing. And so something having been done indicates what? Achievement, accomplishment, production. There is a result. There is a consequence. So by definition, in all labor. So if you're not laboring, then again, by definition, there's no output. Right? There's no consequence. There's no production. There's no value. But if you're putting the effort in, if you're putting the work in, if you are contributing something into the process, then something has been done. And so there is an output, there is an outcome. All right. And uh, so in all labor, there is 
profit. There is increase. There is gain. As opposed to just talking about it. Mere talk leads only to poverty. So, yeah, you know, you talk to a guy, he says he's looking for work. You talk to a guy, he says he's looking for work. You talk to a guy, he says he's looking for work. All right. And some of us in this room have had these conversations. <laughs> so I'm not picking on anybody. All right. Um, so uh, the longer you talk about it, does anything ever get done? Okay, I could, I could use our own example. We're talking about student housing. We're talking about student housing. We're talking about student housing. Well, is anything getting done? Are we just talking about it? Are we working towards that end? Anyway, yeah, the term etzeb is, is interesting the way that it's used. But this is not the only proverb that addresses this. It goes on, look at verse 24. The crown of the wise is their riches. And so you've been working, you have been laboring, you have been productive. There's nothing wrong with that. You can wear it as a crown. You can wear it and, 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 not, and not be embarrassed by it, not be ashamed of it. Wear it as a crown. Be a model to exhibit it to your children, to uh, your community, to others. You want to be the positive example. This is what happens with hard work. But the folly of fools is foolishness. And uh, yeah, they, that's pretty evident too when uh, it comes down to it. Look at Proverbs 21 and verse 5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage. The word advantage there is the same Hebrew term. It's speaking of profit. It's speaking of increase. Okay? So the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage. But everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. And so um, this, I, I, I'll combine this with what we read in verse 14. So as opposed, you know, in, ver- in chapter 14, the contrast is, Putting in the hard work versus just talking about it. Um, is if you're using if you're just talking about it, is that a dodge? Is that a way around working? <laughs> so, well, here in this chapter, uh, the dodge is um, in in the terms of um, trying to find a, a shortcut, trying to find a, a get rich quick scheme, something a way to uh, to uh, you know because diligence, man, that just takes time. That's slow. You mean. You mean I've got to accumulate? I've got to accumulate wealth over ten years, over twenty years, over thirty years. I mean, who has time for that? I want to get rich now. I want to produce it all now so that I can party for thirty years. See, well, wait a minute. So yeah, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage or to increase, to wealth accumulation. But everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. Are there shortcuts? Can you get? Can you have it all now? Can you have it all now? And it's curious to me. And it just seems like we get a whole generation now. They want to graduate college. They want to immediately be making three times what their parents used to be making. And he's like, wait a minute. What are you talking about? You're you're just out of school. And, and, you know, put in in 20 years, put in 30 years, you see, and uh, aspects there. Uh, Proverbs 28, 19. Another proverb speaks of this. 28, 19. He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. So if you, if you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. If you sow plenty, uh, uh, sparingly, or not at all, 
because you're frittering away your life with vanity of vanities, then what do you think you're going to harvest? Yeah, you're going to harvest sparingly or not at all. So he who tills his land will have plenty of food because that's what the land does. If you till, if you, if you um, clear away the weeds, if you plow, if you follow the procedures, that's what it does. You'll have plenty of food. So hard work produces. We want to be productive. Being productive means we are imitators of our Father. Our Father is productive. And He designed this creation to be productive. You ever wonder why produce is called produce? (laughs) Yeah. I used to work in a grocery store. My first job was in a grocery store at 15. Watering the produce. All right. And it's curious to me, this word for work, there's lots of words for work, um, words for um, service, like avad the, the, is, a, is a service word, where an evid is a, is a servant or a slave, and avad is, is kind of work that's uh, service-oriented. There's other work uh, that speaks of the, this is a term, etziv, that's it's only used six times, so it's a fairly obscure term, but it does speak of uh, the pain there are some other cognates, though, that go with etsev, uh, verbs and adjectives and other nouns. And so really, you end up with uh, about 30 uses total throughout the Old Testament that, that, are, that are interesting because it speaks of the hardship. It speaks of, of the, the toil. And, and maybe the word toil is, is a better rendering for it because uh, not, not all work is labor, right? But uh, why, why in childbirth, why is that called labor in, in the sense that, well, it, it's hard, it, it hurts, Okay? At least for now, until you get to the, the new heavens and new earth, and, and there's no curse, there's no sin, there's no pain, there's no death, the first things have passed away. And then, yeah, then I can imagine a whole lot of women will be saying, yeah, sign me up for the thousand generations, and they can have all kinds of babies when there's no, when, uh, there's no more pain associated with, with childbirth. But this is the word that's used there also, and so you see it in Genesis 3. We can look at some of these. So if you're wondering why it says that Netzeb uh, only has six uses and then I put seven verses on the screen, okay, it's because I picked from the larger family, the Netzeb family, including the cognate forms, uh, which has about 34 to 40 uses throughout the, uh, throughout the Old Testament. Anyway, uh, so Genesis 3, let's look at this. This has to do with the fall. This has to do with the fall. And I think sometimes people that aren't oriented to the Bible, people that aren't oriented to truth, they have a they kind of have a worldview that is insane, okay? Bluntly, they they have a worldview that does not comport to reality. And they've got these ideas, these utopian dreams of some imaginary world whereby uh you don't have to work, <laughs> whereby you can just have stuff handed to you, whereby, um, and then, you know, we just live in this, in this Garden of Eden, really, you know, and they don't believe in the Garden of Eden, but they, they, they're trying to create one of their own devising where you don't have to work, you just have stuff handed to you, uh, everybody is entitled to a, you know, a living wage, everybody's entitled to whatever, and you have all these rights and things are just, you know, handed to you like, you know, the streets are paved with cheese and everything is just great, right? 
And, and, and oh, by the way, also there's no crime, there's no violence, we want, we want a world without guns. Uh, we, we just dream of a place where it's just this wonderful land of, of, of you know, it's like the Mr. Rogers wonderful world of make-believe or something. And yet they think that they can get there with their policies being put into effect. It's just a utopian dream and it doesn't exist. Utopia, literally, no place, does not exist. So, um, so you go to Genesis and you look at the fall and you realize, wait a minute, we had a perfect world until Adam and Eve sinned, okay? Now we got consequences. And part of those consequences include pain, include toil, include, you know, work was designed before the fall. And so as I look at Genesis 3, verses 16 and 17, I might even back up a little bit, uh, when you notice there's no sin, there's no death, there's no wrath of God, there's no judgment, there's nothing, but he puts Adam and Eve in the garden and they're told to rule, they're told to work. Work is not a consequence of sin. All right, and he even gives them a helper. So when you're reading chapters 1 and 2, he placed them there, he, uh, he tells them to work, he gives them the instruction to cultivate the garden and to keep it. And um, yeah, I just don't see how you can view work as a bad thing. It's not a consequence of the, of the fall. But once they do fall, now work becomes toil. That's, that's the, the point of what I'm trying to say here. So anyway... Um, I'm not spotting the verse I'm looking for, but he um, he puts them in the garden. He shapes the garden. This is in chapter two, and he puts them there. Tells them the trees. Okay, it's two fifteen is what I'm looking for. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. So those aren't consequences of of sin. It's not an effect of the fall. God is productive. He designed Adam to be productive. He commanded Adam to be productive. Cultivating and keeping those verbs are not a consequence of the fall. And likewise, to rule, to subdue and to rule. When you back up to chapter 1 and verse 28, uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves. Those verbs, those are legitimate, valid expressions of of uh, the divine mandate we have to to rule this creation god is the creator and we are his stewards humanity was designed to rule over the plants and the animals of this earth so if you want to worship them and serve them you can flip it upside down and become an idol worshiper or you can have a biblical view of the environment these are these are not consequences of the fall these are uh, part and parcel with God's design for creation. It's not until chapter 3 then that we have a fall and, uh, and other things start then to be impacted. And so um, consequences here. To the, to the woman he said in 3.16, I will greatly multiply your pain. And here we have uh, Etsev, we have some of the cognates of Etsev, Etsavin, Etsavon, some other terms. Um, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And so there's pain. 
In verse 17, to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten... Yeah, don't ever do that again. You have listened... I'm teasing. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain or in toil, let's say, you will eat of it all the days of your life. And so the man gets pain of working, the woman gets pain of babies. They both have pain attached to them as a consequence of the fall. But work itself was not designed to have that. All right. And so that's uh, the application there. How about Psalm 127? This is interesting to me because who wrote Psalm 127? Who? Nope. This one shows up on, uh, on uh, Bible trivia quizzes. Yeah, Solomon. Okay. So he wrote all the Proverbs. And then Psalm 127. All right. So do you think there's some agreement here between Psalm 127 and the Proverbs? Yeah, I would think so. Including the use of this kind of pain. Unless the Lord builds the house, the labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Now, some people take this verse out of context and and they want to use it as their excuse to laziness, and it says just the opposite. It says just the opposite. It doesn't say don't work hard, but it says don't work hard without the Lord. Okay? With the Lord, work hard. And so you can't take verse 2 without verse 1, and you can't separate it out. And, and when you do that, you, take, you just turn this verse on its head. You flip it upside down, and you have the backwards application. So unless the Lord builds the house, that's the context. So, you know, you're, you're a busy little beaver doing all this stuff, serving the Lord and bringing in the kingdom and all this other stuff, and, and the Lord's not in any of that. What are you doing? Okay, you should be walking with him. You should be running with endurance the race that's set before you. You're off over there running your own race, doing your own thing. Singing the old I gotta be me song and doing whatever you're doing on on that. And uh, I did it my way or whatever, right? No, walk with the Lord. Walk with the Lord. So unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. And you think you got all this productivity and you think you're going to be really a big man on campus when you get to the judgment seat of Christ until you watch the fire hits all of it. It's wood, hands, double. You weren't doing anything for the Lord. You were laboring in vain. You were doing your own thing. Likewise, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. If God has removed his protection from something, what do you do in guarding it? Likewise, verse 2, it is vain for you to rise up early. In the context, without the Lord's presence, to rise up early and to retire late. See, some people think the answer isn't... Uh, see, I think they're, they're, what happens is you, you get away from the Lord, you're not in His will, you're doing what you're doing, and then He, uh, he starts to discipline you a little bit. You start to get some, some non-productivity. <laughs> You've been fishing all night and you don't have anything to show for it. Right? Remember the disciples? And here they are fishing all night. They got nothing to show for it. And so what's the answer? 
humble yourself and get on board with God's program, right? Confess your sin, get back in the will of God, get on track with what He would have for you to do. Stop trying to, stop spinning your wheels in the human effort of what you were trying to do without the Lord, okay? Alternatively, it's very common for human beings, no, no, I just got to do more. And so they double down on stupid. They double down on more of what they've been doing. I just got to put in more hours. I got to wake up early. I got to go into the office even earlier. I've got to stay late. I need more overtime. Because clearly, what you've been doing has not been working. Why are you going to do more of it? Is more of it going to make a difference? And so again, I, I, I would caution, don't take verse 2 out of context, right? Because um, you know you can look at those principles there about rising early, retiring late, and you say, well, what's wrong with that? Didn't the virtuous woman do that in Proverbs 31? She woke up early, she was busy, she was feeding her maiden, she was doing things before the sun came up, and then she was also doing things late into the night. And, and, and so it almost seems like verse 2 contradicts Proverbs 31. Well, only if you separate verse 2 from verse 1 and you take it out of that, that context whereby the, uh, the recognition here, it is vain for you without the Lord to rise up early. It is vain for you without the Lord to retire late. It is vain for you without the Lord to eat the bread of painful labors. If you're serving with the Lord, then by all means, eat the bread of painful labors because you're, you're laboring painfully. You're, you're laboring painfully with the Lord. So yeah, eat that bread. The worker is worthy of his hire. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive the produce of his crops. With the Lord, of course. And then you recognize, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. So then you realize, you know what? I'm working with the Lord. I'm his beloved. I'm his fellow worker. I'm his fellow soldier. I'm his fellow laborer. And I'm going to rest and I'm going to rest in Him. I'm going to I'm going to unplug, as they're talking about now. I'm going to I'm not I'm not going to worry about it. And I'm going to I've done what I've done is unto the Lord. And so when it's time to uh, to punch that that time clock, I'm off duty. That's great. I'm still in the hands of the Lord, and the Lord can uh, can multiply loaves and fishes beyond anything I I did in the the time that I was clocked in. See. Anyway. And then, of course, the rest of Psalm 127, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. All right. And what did Warren rewrote that verse, didn't he? Blessed is the man whose children's quiver is full of them. (laughs) So anyway. The, fun, the, the joys of being a grandparent, a great-grandparent. All right. So there's Psalm 127. And wisdom motivates that. So if you're going to serve the Lord, yes, it's painful labor, but you're, you're serving the Lord. You're with the Lord. And uh, He builds a house, you're building it with Him. He's guarding a city, you're guarding it with Him. If He rises up early, you rise up early. If He stays up late, you stay up late. But if he punches off the clock and says, time to rest, you rest. What a joy, because he can give to his beloved even in his sleep. How about Proverbs 5.10? Back to Proverbs now. 
<laughs> this is in a warning against uh, fornication, a warning against uh, self-destructive behavior that will have consequences uh, in your physical health, will have consequences in your bank account, will have consequences in your well-being. And so, um, my sons, listen to me, verse 7, do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. The physical health consequences of, of uh, sexual immorality. And strangers will be filled with your strength, and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. So instead of providing for your wife, providing for your children, providing for your grandchildren, um, your uh, livelihood is, is gone and you've, uh, your hard-earned goods are gone and uh, there it goes. And you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, how I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. And you should have known better. You did know better and you did it anyway. You allowed lust to take over and you went down that path and you knew it was destructive and you knew it was going to have consequences. And so you racked up legal bills and you racked up uh, divorce attorney bills and you racked up court costs and you racked up, you racked up uh, alimony and child support and you racked up uh, venereal disease and you racked up all these other things. And now that you're known in your community for being such an unreliable person, if he cheats on his wife, is he going to cheat in business? Is he going to cheat uh, in, in, uh, in a business dealing? And uh, so now there's consequences in the, in the workplace and you, you find you can't get hired in some applications. Anyway, we, we preached this. That's, there was a lot of Wednesdays spent in this chapter. But it's curious to me, the, the, the term in verse 10, when it says your hard-earned goods, that's what we're talking about, hard-earned goods. The, the production, you worked for that, you produced that, it hurt, you put in the hours, you put in the, uh, the, uh, the work on that. This is why it's so insulting when a, when a socialist politician tells you, you didn't build that. You didn't work for that. You should share that. Okay? Because whatever. Because you traveled on roads to get there. Or you used electricity to get there. It's dumb stuff. Right? You didn't deserve that. You didn't earn that. Those aren't your hard-earned goods. We're all in this together. Wait a minute. The Scripture calls it your hard-earned goods. Okay? I don't remember seeing this guy uh, working with me when I was pulling 60-hour-a-week uh, overtime shifts and, and uh, doing all this other stuff. It's your hard-earned goods. How about uh, Proverbs uh, 10 and verse 22? It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and He adds no sorrow to it. That's kind of a nice contrast too, isn't it? The term sorrow there. The term sorrow is the term for hard work. It's the term for toil. And uh, when you're serving the Lord, there it is. The blessing of the Lord that makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. 
So is it sorrowful or not sorrowful? <laughs> yes and no. I mean, yes, it's hard work. Yes, there's toil. Yes, there's sorrow. Yes, there's pain. But hey, when you're serving the Lord, really, is there pain? Does it hurt to serve the Lord? Okay. It's kind of curious to me. So depending on the passage you're reading, there's no pain or there is pain. All right. Then um, chapter 14, verse 23, of course, is what we're looking at this morning. How about Ecclesiastes 10, 9? Ecclesiastes. So Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. We get to Song of Solomon, you've gone too far. And uh, yeah, this one's interesting too. Well, where do I start? Verse 5, there is an evil I have seen under the sun like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places while rich men sit in humble places. It just seems sometimes in society and culture um, the biggest morons get promoted <laughs> and, and people of uh, accomplishment get brought down. People of accomplishment get insulted and blamed and... Um, yeah, I wonder what uh, Ecclesiastes would think of our culture today. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves in the land. Well, when does that happen? When do the people of accomplishment get plundered while the people with no accomplishment uh, enjoy uh, things that they didn't uh, produce? He who, then verse 8, He who digs a pit may fall into it. And a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. Well, that doesn't sound good. Okay. But is that, is that reason to not do something? He who digs a pit may fall into it. So, yeah. There are, there are dangers associated with working. Just be aware of them. Be careful as you work. It's not, uh, it's not a, what is the, the, the OSHA requirements? Is it the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, whatever it is? We've got a government agency that inspects workplaces to see, you know, what the dangers are, and they, assi- they assign fees and fines and penalties and whatever. Um, but if uh, there are uh, dangers in the workplace, you can get hurt at work. So what's the answer? Don't work ever. That's right, yeah. But see, this is the thing. It comes down to it, there is a mindset that doesn't want to do that kind of work because it's tough, it's hard, it hurts. You got this long hours, there's risk. There's, and then there's a mindset that says, wow, I, I, I can take that risk, okay? And so there's different mentalities and some of those mentalities are cultural. Some of those mentalities are um, uh, gender-based. Some of those mentalities are uh, differences between men and women. Men are much more willing to do the more dangerous things because they can get paid more for it. Women, as a rule, are not as willing to do those dangerous things. They would, And, as a rule, prefer the time off and the preferred time with family and prefer i'm just saying 
I'm going to get in trouble. But the point being, the Scripture says, if you dig a hole, you can fall into it. (laughs) And if you're involved in demolition, if you ever knock a a building down, or you knock through a wall, you you know what you're going to find in that wall? Okay? And I'll admit, when when we had a critter in our our, uh, chimney, I didn't want to get that critter out of there. I paid somebody to get that critter out of there. And I paid good money for, to get that critter out of there. And, uh, and he assured me, he says, oh, we're environmentally friendly and we're going to be humane and we're going to treat it and we're going to release. I said, I don't care. You can kill the dumb thing. I just want it out of my chimney. And I'm willing to pay you. The worker is worthy of his hire. <laughs> okay. All right. Because I make my choices. Anyway. A serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them. He who splits logs may be endangered by them. You know, you're working with tools. Guess what? If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. Aha, here we go. And so the answer isn't, uh, you know, is, uh, I mean, you want... Sharpen your tools. Use your tools appropriately. Care for your tools. Be smart about what you're doing. But recognize in what you're doing, there will be risk associated with hard work. That's the world we live in. Now, Adam was expected to cultivate the garden and to keep it. Was cultivating the garden require tools? Were there risks associated with using tools? Might he have injured himself? We're talking about before he sinned, before he fell, before spiritual death was bestowed upon Adamic humanity. Was he going to be hungry at the end of the day? Yeah, he was going to be hungry at the end of the day. Was he, did he need to eat? Yes, he needed to eat. See, issues of eating and injuries and health, all of those issues, physical death, physical injury, all those things have no bearing on Adam's original sin. The consequence of Adam's original sin was spiritual death. And only spiritual death. Okay? Not physical death. Not falling out of a tree and breaking a leg. Not uh, cutting a, an arm on a, on a uh, rusty tool. All right. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. And so uh, it's curious to me here. Um, he who quarries, the term that we have there uh, may be endangered by them. He who quarries stones, quarries. It's either quarries or splits. Anyway, works. One of those terms is our term for, uh, for itself. Maybe hurt by, oh, hurt. It's the term hurt. Okay? Because it's pain. It's toil. Work hurts. And sometimes it hurts more than other days. And that's Okay. That's okay. All right. So wisdom motivates labor over talk, profit over poverty. And uh, that's by design. That's a good thing. Back to uh, the text. Proverbs 14 and verse 25. A truthful witness saves lives. But he who utters lies is treacherous. We've discussed um, truth versus lies as well in previous 
passages. Truth versus lies, they are matters of life and death. Truth versus lies are matters of life and death. Here's an application we have not seen in some of the earlier references. We had it in verse 5, you might recall. A trustworthy witness will not lie and a false witness utters lies. Remember that? That was uh, almost a tautology in the, in the so what, in the duh factor of verse 5. Guess what? Truthful people tell the truth and liars tell lies. Did you know that? All right, but more than that, more than that, it is a matter of life and death. A truthful witness saves lives. Well, how? How does telling the truth save somebody's life? Oh, let me tell you, especially in this spiritual realm, especially when we're talking about souls, okay? Whereas a liar, he who utters lies is treacherous, destructive to the soul, destructive to the soul. And see, right now we've got a culture, we've got a, we've got a, um, a situation in our country right now where good is called evil and evil is called good, and in the name of love, quote-unquote love, they are lying to sinners left and right and telling them that their activity is not sin and telling them that their activity is just an alternate lifestyle, that their activity is good and right and we should be uh, you know, promoting it. And uh, they've turned tolerance now into advocation and you have to promote it. And if you don't promote it, then you're a hater. And that's exactly the opposite of the truth. And so instead of telling the truth and saving a soul, you're lying to the destruction of those souls. And it's horrible, absolutely horrible. And so, um, but when you, when you speak the truth in love, when you tell the truth about what God's standard is for sexuality, what God's standard is for righteousness, what God's standard is uh, in applying the Word of God, you are saving their soul. And so it is a matter of life and death. Communicators of the Word of God must be absolutely truthful in communicating absolute truth. <laughs> and then really, um, that's probably the first battle that was lost is the whole idea of moral relativism and there are no absolutes. And well, okay, maybe, maybe the Bible morality is okay for you, but you know, uh, it's old-fashioned and it's outdated and we're, we're updating things now to the modern world. And, and, uh, and so they have this, this uh, they've already built into their own thinking the idea that the Bible is not absolute truth, so they, they feel perfectly fine to, to update it. And it's not just in the homosexuality, it's in the flagrant, rampant uh, promiscuity among heterosexuals as well that uh, they can have 40 partners before they settle down and get married and God's okay with that. You know, because, well, you know, you know, and so they create this other standard for, uh, for uh, sexuality. It's not the Bible standard. Anyway. Um, I don't know how far we'll get with this. Uh, the bulk of this is going to come um, next week. Let me start with First um, Timothy. I'll save Ezekiel, and I'll save Acts, and I'll save Ephesians. Yeah. Let's start with 1 Timothy. No, let's start with Ephesians. <laughs> Change my mind. Ephesians 4.15. And so, um, 
Remember in Ephesians 4, what do we got? We got 4, 5, and 6. We got the application of all the theology in 1, 2, and 3. In Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, we got the application. You and I have to walk in a manner worthy. You and I, uh, as it says in 4, 1, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So we have application. Chapter 4, 5, and 6 is the consequence of chapters 1, 2, and 3. We're not, we're not trying to be goody tissues, you know, do-gooders in order to earn eternal life. We've already established the grace gospel in chapters 1, 2, and 3. By grace you're saved through faith, not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, right? We've established the theology in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now we're going to live it out in our application. And so um, this, is our, this is our walk. And in, the, in our walk here, in chapter 4, we're told uh, to grow up. We're told to, uh, that we're being equipped. We should be a part of a local assembly to be equipped. Verse 12 says, For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, the building up of the body of Christ. Uh, it says in verse 14, We're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. We have to be solid in our, in our uh, walk. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. So speaking the truth in love. And, and really, it, the, the, even the word speaking isn't in there. We're truthing. We're truthing in love. We're taking aletheia as a noun and making it a verb, and we are truthing one another in love. Growing up into all aspects into Him. And so if it's not in accordance with the truth, it's not love. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Rejoices in the truth. So it's not love to, uh, to tell somebody they can pursue a non-biblical lifestyle. So speaking the truth in love. That's verse 15. And then uh, you'll notice, you get down to verse 25. And, and so we have to put off the old self, put on the new self. The truth is in Jesus. Uh, verse 22 says, uh, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the loss of deceit. Being corrupted, right? If we're speaking the truth, that's one thing, but we're saving a soul. But if we're lying, what are we doing? Destroying them, leading them into this corruption, Right? So be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new self. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, verse 24, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. He may not want to hear it, but you've got to tell him the truth. Truth is truth, whether he likes it or not. And it, maybe it does hurt, but he's got to hear it because the lie is destructive. The truth will save his soul. So that's Ephesians 4. How about um, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and chapter 5? First Timothy 4. Verse 11 says, Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. So here's a young preacher who's been traveling with Paul for 10 years. 
and he's still young enough that his flock may, uh, may, not, may, may not listen to what he says. So how young was he when he went into Thessalonica and started teaching them there? That's, that's hilarious to me. And then he says, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was shown, bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. Why? So that your progress will be evident to all. Yeah, you're a young man. Yeah, you're going to make mistakes. They're going to watch that. That's good. They're going to see you learn from your mistakes. They're going to see you grow. And they're supposed to do that. And then it says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, what happens? You will ensure salvation, both for yourself and for those who hear you. Telling the truth is a matter of life and death. Telling the truth, this is salvation. This is not phase one salvation, right? This is phase two. Do we get this? Saving the soul delivering that person from the consequences of sin they were about to get into, but you preached to them and you modeled the behavior and you loved them enough to tell them the truth. And not only them, but also yourself. Are you doing yourself any favors when you lie to your flock? If you equip them to compromise with truth, what damage does that do to your own soul, preacher? (laughs) Well, how easy is it for you to then start to compromise on your own blind spots and your own issues? Because you're helping them duck their things. You can start ducking your own things. After all, why shouldn't you get a piece of this? uh... Anyway, it's curious to me. And then chapter 5 and verse 22. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. It goes to that very same issue. What you're preaching, those that you're training, what they're preaching, speaking the truth saves. Speaking the truth, that's a matter of life and death. All right, there's more on this. We'll come back to this in Acts. Uh, we'll come back to this in Ezekiel. Communicators of the Word of God must be absolutely truthful in communicating absolute truth. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for our time together. Um, pray that you would open our eyes to these blessed, blessed principles found in Proverbs and uh, found throughout the Old and New Testament alike. Thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.